John chapter 3, you know that Jesus was uh, having a conversation. Nicodemus had come to him in the evening and uh, was asking him some questions. He was asking him things like, I want to know how to be born again. And so Jesus was explaining that. You know, as the conversation continues, Jesus made a statement that has become possibly the uh, most well-learned and most publicized verse in the entire Bible out of John chapter 3. Um, you've probably heard it before. It's John three 16. You've probably seen it uh, behind the goalpost at, at many a football game or some other place. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. That's the gospel. That's the Christmas gospel. It's good all year. And that's the word of the Lord for us today. Now, I want to ask you a question, uh, not a very spiritual question. What do Frank Sinatra and Bean Crosby and Leonard Skinner and the Carpenters and Michael Bolton and Justin Bieber and Green Day and the Temptations and Faith Hill and Mariah Carey and, and Alvin and the Chipmunks and about 120 other musicians all have in common? Well, they've all recorded the same Christmas song, and it, it's a song that you might be familiar with. It's a song that you might have talked about at your grace group last Sunday, or you might have read about if, if you're a parent and you read Landon's uh, email that he sent to you, or, or, or if you saw many of the Christmas blogs that are written about. You might have even heard the president sing this song recently. And I'll bet that if you've gone to a department store or if you've ridden an elevator during Christmas for any length of time, you've heard this song. According to people that know, it's the number two most performed Christmas song of all time. I know you're saying, well, okay, then what's number one? Well, the chestnuts roasting on an open fire is number one, but, but who's ever really done that you know, and enjoyed that? This song is about Santa Claus. But the thing is, is that if you pay attention to the words of this song, what it very well may do is destroy this notion of jolly old Santa because it exposes him as a works-oriented guilt-motivating tyrant. You know the song, You Better Watch Out. You Better Not Cry. You Better Not Pout. I'll tell you why. It's because Santa Claus is coming to town. You know what he's doing? He's making a list. And he's looking back at that list. Because he wants to find out who's naughty and who's nice. He knows when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. So let me just encourage you. You need to be good. Don't cry. Don't pout. Because Santa's coming to town. Now, if you have issues in your life and you can't figure them out, maybe you can trace them back to Santa Claus. Maybe you can trace them back to this song. I mean, if you ever think about the pressure that it puts on a little child, it did on me, you better straighten up. There's this, this big bearded, red suited, godlike figure who's keeping tabs on you and he knows you. So you better suck it up and start behaving. You better stop that pounding and stop that crying because he's making that list and he's taking names and you're on it. And I'll tell you something else. He's on his way. Well, I mean, that song is all in, in good fun and, and, and this kind of thing makes great sermon fodder. But, but actually, when you, when you think about this, when you really dig into it for a moment, if you would like to, then what we find out is that, that this idea of, of Santa watching everyone and knowing everything and doing some other things that really only our Heavenly Father can do, 
And then declaring that you have to be good enough to earn this gift that you have your heart set on. You know, that's one of the, maybe the foundational humanistic twist to Christmas. I know it's just a song. And maybe it's not so much the song. But it really does betray a mentality that exists that's with us all year round. Because what it's saying is that your ability to receive blessings and gifts is dependent upon the way you behave. You'll get gifts if you earn them. And then if we're good enough, which we never really know how good, much, how good we have to be, but if we're good enough in our own minds, and it's like we have the right to say, hey, hey Santa, I've, I've been good. You owe me this, this gift. What kind of gift is that? That's not a gift. That's, that's just an entitlement. That's just a payment for what is owed. And so what we see in this fun little second most performed Christmas song is some dangerous theology. What we see is that our works merit blessings. That we deserve to have something under that tree. And what that does is it cuts against the gospel message that's found in John 3.16. Because what it seems to be saying is this. It says, sure, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So that, so that whoever watched out and whoever better not cried and whoever stopped pouting and whoever's not naughty but nice. Well, you pat yourself on the back because, because those are the ones that really deserve the gift. They have earned that gift of eternal life. That's not right. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, another familiar verse. It seems to be saying if we believed in this humanistic twist, this idea of our works merit a gift, then Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 would say, for by your works you've been saved. It is of yourselves. It is a gift of God because of your works. So you might as well go ahead and boast about it. Now, again, you might be saying, hey, it's just a fun song. You're making a big deal out of this. Way too much out of it. But, but does the idea portrayed, does it add to Christmas, really, or does it take away from it? Now listen, if you're a successful, according to Santa, no pouting, being good, then you will be rewarded. Because gifts go to the successful little boys and girls who know how to behave, who know how to play the game, who know how to act right, who know how to look right, who are proud. They go to the ones that deserve those gifts. But if that's really true, then, then, then why would Jesus make his entrance into the world in the presence of a poor carpenter and a teenage mother in a smelly stable, why wouldn't Jesus make a more successful entrance into the world? Maybe he should have come to those who, who really do know how to play the game. Maybe he should have come to those who are self-sufficient. Maybe it would have been a much better statement of what Christmas is about if Jesus would have been born in some great center of learning or, or, or in the presence of high officials or in some cosmopolitan city where the, the newspaper and the, and the popular people could gather all around and, and uh, he could enter with all this pomp and all this circumstance with the people who live on the upper ends of the, of the cultural and social totem pole. Because these are the good ones. 
These are the proud ones. These are the important ones, the successful ones, the ones who are watching out, the ones who are making that grade socially and morally and culturally. Those are the ones who increase in wisdom and riches and might and count on that. But he didn't do that. He came to a stable, just a smelly old stable. And I'm glad that he did that. Because if he would have targeted the proud and the successful and the self-reliant, perfect people, that would have knocked me out. I wouldn't have been eligible. I know that would have knocked a lot of us out as well. There's something that's, that's, that's very significant. There's something that's very real about Jesus being born in a stable in this tiny speck of a dusty town called Bethlehem. And here's Mary and Joseph. They're, they're away from home. And, and, and there's a, 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 she's a teenage peasant mother there with a, with a, a, a poor husband stuck in this unsanitary substandard housing amongst animals laid in a food trough in the presence of these stinking and smelly shepherds and there's no fanfare. They just laid him in that manger and they watched his little face. They counted his fingers and his toes while the world is bustling around them just like proud new parents do. No self-sufficiency here. And when you think of the picture that actually existed a couple of thousand years ago in that stable, it, it, it speaks with words like weakness and meekness and insignificance. Words like humble, words like lowly. The stable speaks of mercy. So you see, now we're getting to something that's very, very important for us. That God gave his only son to the world, not to those who earned the gift but to those who accept his mercy. Let that sink down. Let it sink deeply this Christmas. The gospel is not about merit. This gospel is about mercy. God's mercy. God's favor. Seeing the need. Feeling the need. Being able to meet the need. And then actually meeting it. That's mercy. God's mercy. So you look again at the stable in Bethlehem, and, and when you do so, what we see is God's merciful response to our deepest, most crucial needs. Because what God is saying is, hey, I haven't forgotten you. I'm with you. I want to heal you. I want to come to that stinky, stable heart of yours, and I want to redeem your life and show you my glory. I'm here to restore you. I've come here to save you. Ephesians 2 says, God being rich in mercy, even when we were dead, made us alive together in Christ Jesus. We need his mercy. We need it for our sin. We need it for our addictions. We need it for our marriage. We need it for our children. We need it for our struggles. We need it for our brokenness, for our helplessness. We need his mercy when we think we're self-sufficient. And we need it most... When we think we deserve something from our Heavenly Father. Listen to Jesus' parable of Here Comes Santa Claus. It's Luke chapter 18, verse 9. He says this, To some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. 
Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like all the other men, robbers and evildoers and adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of everything that I get. In other words, he's saying, I don't cry, I don't pout, I've been good. and In fact, I've been better than a lot of other people, for goodness sake. Then it says, Jesus continues, but the, the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up into heaven, but he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me because I am a sinner. Then Jesus concludes. He says, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. And everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbled himself will be Exalted. See, this tax collector knew his condition. This tax collector knew his need. He was totally helpless, save the mercy of God. We see that throughout Scripture. We see it in a leper. We see it in a blind man. Uh, we see it in a, a many other occasions. We see it in Nicodemus. Nicodemus, who was, who was the equivalent of a high court judge who was very wealthy. You know, Nicodemus is the one that gave spices for Jesus' burial, and they've calculated that those spices in modern-day terms would cost upwards of $150,000. And yet Nicodemus understood because he possessed a stable heart. So I think the idea is this. Mercy comes to a stable heart. God so loved. I mean, picture the scene in this stable. Here's Jesus, the King of Kings, the the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the Prince of Peace. He's totally helpless. He's just like any other newborn. He is totally dependent upon someone else. He couldn't even turn over without the help of his mother. Even Jesus' first contact with the world was through the mercy of his mother. We have a couple of friends named David and, and Stacy, and, and they had been trying to have a child. And after a while, finally they did. They were able to, to have a little girl, and her name was Stephanie. And Stephanie, though, was born with a, a, a terrible condition where her spinal cord was not attached to her brain. And she was alive, but she couldn't move, and she couldn't recognize. She was unable to acknowledge. And it was a, it was a, a very, very deep thing. She lived a couple of years. It was absolutely amazing to see how her parents, David and Stacy, loved Stephanie. Not because she did anything to earn their love, because she couldn't even recognize them. Because she, she couldn't even see. All that she could do was receive the love and mercy from her parents. That's all that she could do. But they loved her greatly. Now, what if their love for Stephanie depended upon Stephanie's ability to be nice rather than naughty and to be good simply for goodness sake? What if she had to earn her parents' love? See, because of her condition, she couldn't. But that didn't matter to David and Stephanie. They loved her anyway. 
Romans 5 says, while we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. That is mercy. That's stable mercy. Mary, Joseph, a few animals, some shepherds, a manger, nothing specially noteworthy or notorious. But, but in that simple, humble scene, there in that stable, veiled in flesh, the Godhead, the incarnate deity. Wow. God sent his son, the most uh, profound and the greatest embodiment of his love and his mercy and his grace, not to the, 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 the proud Uh, pompous, prideful palace. But he came to a lowly, smelly stable. That stable, that that meek and humble born that smelled so nasty with those hungry and helpless animals. It cries mercy. And it welcomes mercy. I think this idea is that everyone who sees their need for his mercy and love and puts out their hands in humble, helpless repentance, expressing their need for his supply, those are the ones that will never perish, but will have eternal life. Because God's love in reserve for those who think that they deserve it. He chooses to love us precisely because we are subjects of this human condition called sin. And because we're in a state where we need His mercy, we need it whether we realize it or not. But here's something that I honestly admit that I'm afraid of. And I think it happens to, to a lot of us, something that we might be guilty of. What happens is we ebb and flow, don't we, in our relationship with the Lord. Sometimes our relationship with Him can turn cold in the passion of Christmas time and all that it means can sort of ebb and, and flow. And, and there's times when we know that worship is important, but, but it just seems dull. And, and we know we should practice certain spiritual disciplines like spending time in the Word and prayer and, and sharing our faith with others. But it's so easy to let those things get crowded out in our lives. And in our lives, our Christian life can go from delight to duty, even to drudgery. Why is that? I think it's because one of the reasons is because we naturally default to the trap of living by merit instead of depending upon his mercy. We fall back into that trap of saying it's up to us to to, to earn God's favor and his mercy. This list that Santa is making, this list is not new. If you're like me, We've been making this list, our own list, for, for a long time. And we count on sometimes that I need to be good for God. And sometimes we realize we're never good enough. And so we feel guilty because of it. And then we can look at the Bible. And, you know, it tells us a lot of stuff that we need to do as, as Christians, as believers. And that stuff is good. Because we want to know how to, how to follow the Lord and how to uh, live a life that pleases Him. You know, obey the Ten Commandments and, and all the other precepts that He has in there. Love the Lord with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Or you could sum it up in Romans chapter 12 where, where He says, Present your bodies as holy and living sacrifices and don't be conformed to this world. And there's so much to do sometimes. And our list, we just add it to the list and add it to the list. And sometimes it seems like the list never ends 
And we can become discouraged because we can't do it all. And maybe that's why Romans chapter 12, uh, God through the Apostle Paul so wisely put the preface in the first verse of chapter 12 when he said, Therefore, I urge you in view of God's mercy. Paul didn't say, uh, therefore, in light of the fact that God is watching you to make sure you're toeing the line, to make sure that you're being nice rather than naughty and you're being good. And now that you're doing those things, do even more. It doesn't say that. And he didn't say, look what I did for you. I sacrificed my son for you. The least that you can do is sacrifice everything for him. That makes me feel incredibly guilty. In view of God's mercy. In view of God's mercy. It's not, that view is not some some white-bearded, God-like figure in a red suit who, who keeps a list. The view of God's mercy is wrapped in swaddling clothes, bundled in the arms of a brand new teenage mother. That view of God's mercy carries through and that little baby grows up and he, he's holding little children in his lap and he's bending over a helpless woman and he's, he's weeping over Lazarus and he's weeping over Jerusalem and he's coming to the aid of the leper and the blind man and he's going to the outcast from the proud, the meritorious, and he's going to the cross. That's mercy. You know, Jesus showed mercy to those who realized their need and cried out to him no matter who they were, And no matter where they were, those were the ones with a stable heart. Live in view of God's mercy. Brian Chappell, who's a former seminary president at Covenant Seminary, tells a story that he heard from a pastor. It seems that a 12-year-old girl won a chocolate teddy bear at at a Christmas gift exchange. Well, the next day, her mother opened the door to her bedroom and saw her three-year-old brother chomping down on that chocolate teddy bear. It's not like something that I would do. He was caught red-handed and chocolate-faced. And he looked up at his mother and he began to cry because he knew, you know, she didn't have to tell him that that was wrong. He, He knew that that wasn't right. And he felt horrible. He began sobbing. And his mother said, well, you're going you're gonna to still have to tell your sister when he comes home. And so he, he agonized over that. He was tortured, wondering what his sister would say when she got home. And it's like the time would never come. But finally the time came and, and the sister came home. And the boy ran to the door, bursting into, into tears, confessing, sobbing his guilt to his sister. Well, his big sister loved her little brother. And so she took him in her arms and kissed him all over. And she said, it's okay, Johnny, I love you anyway, and I love you always. And though the little boy was still crying, he began to giggle. And tears were streaming down his cheeks. And he was laughing and crying with joy at the same time. And he he hugged his sister with all of his strength. See, that repentant stable heart of little Johnny was met by the love and mercy of his big sister. Never, never, never think that we can replace the need for God's mercy with merit. 
because we can never earn God's mercy. God's stable mercy comes to the stable heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm so glad that it's you and not Santa Claus who knows when we're sleeping. And I'm so glad that it's you who knows when we're awake. And Father, I know that you know that when we've been bad and when we've been good. And you know that we're never good enough for goodness sake. That's why I'm so grateful, Lord, that you sent your son. Jesus, to come into this world by means of a smelly stable, that you sent him to show mercy and favor on those who know that they need it. And Lord, I pray that we might rest in your mercy and your favor. Amen.